complicated is ABCD, which stands for Always Be Connecting Dots. In an industry that many people see as a basic transaction, I give you money, you give me food, Meyer encourages his staff to connect information that can turn a guest's experience into a richer, more memorable event. It sounds good on paper, but it's still an abstract concept. Meyer's stories bring that concept to life. Meyer tells the story of the night a political convention was being held in town, and 11 members of the press showed up for dinner. One of those guests was then NBC anchor Tom Brokaw. Meyer saw 11 opportunities to connect dots and to amplify word of mouth. As Meyer was leaving at 1 a.m., the group was still there, and he casually said, If you folks stay long enough, we'll have to serve you scrambled eggs for dessert. One guest turned to Meyer and said, I bet you've never had eggs daffodil. That's the real thing. On his way out, Meyer instructed the staff to search for eggs daffodil, and if they had the ingredients, to put a bowl of it on the table. The chef found a vague description online, but enough to create an inspired recipe. At 2 a.m., the group was blown away when the staff served eggs daffodil in a copper pot. It was so delicious, the chef added it to the restaurant's brunch menu. Two years later, Meyer ran into Tom Brokaw again. Brokaw said he had told at least 12 people the story of the eggs daffodil. That single act of listening to the customer and using the information to make their experience memorable had a clear impact on those people and the people they told about the experience. But Danny Meyer's real genius is in how he uses stories to educate and motivate his staff and to impart to them the culture of hospitality that has made his restaurant so successful. Storytelling is a force replicator. It takes a single act and turns it into a regular happening at Meyer's restaurants. The Storyteller's Secret Business, like life, is all about how you make people feel. Stories help people feel more deeply, and it helps to internalize the behaviors your team is expected to model. Part 3. Storytellers Who Simplify Chapter 18. If something can't be explained on the back of an envelope... It's rubbish. Great leaders are almost always great simplifiers. Colin Powell Richard dropped out of school at the age of 15. Richard has dyslexia and had trouble reading. Although an estimated 4 to 8% of school children have the condition, Richard's teachers and peers did not understand dyslexia at the time he went to school. I was trouble, and always in trouble, Richard recalls. By the age of eight, I still couldn't read. Dyslexia wasn't deemed a problem in those days, or to put it more accurately, it was a problem only if you were dyslexic yourself. Since nobody had ever heard of dyslexia, being unable to read, write, or spell just meant to the rest of the class and the teachers that you were either stupid or lazy, and at prep school, you were beaten for both, said Richard. Like other storytellers in this book, Richard turned his weakness into a strength and reframed his life's narrative. After all, the world is filled with famous dyslexics. Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell, Albert Einstein, and Walt Disney, to name a few. Leonardo da Vinci, the great painter, had both dyslexia and ADHD, a trait Richard is nearly certain he has too. Richard was well aware of these individuals and the power of the mind to shape his future. What he may not have realized at the age of 15 when he dropped out of school was that dyslexia would give him an uncommon advantage. Richard once told CNN's Anderson Cooper, The reason that I think people who are dyslexic seem to exceed quite well in life, having had hell at school, is that you simplify things. Sir Richard Branson did do quite well. 
The billionaire founder of Virgin Group inspires employees and customers with his vision of customer service and philanthropy. Simple storytelling has always been a core component to his success, beginning with his very first venture. While attending a boarding school in Buckingham, England, the young Richard Branson had an idea. He wanted to launch a magazine that challenged the status quo. The magazine, called Student, would spearhead campaigns against bullying and corporal punishment. Branson had a problem, though. He had to persuade advertisers and distributors to back a magazine that had yet to publish a single issue. When the school's headmaster refused to give Branson a phone in his room, Branson used a payphone to place calls to potential sponsors. In order to avoid the operator coming back on the line to cut me off, Branson once said, I learned how to pack all of this into five minutes. He discovered by necessity that persuasive storytelling must be confident, clear, and above all, concise and simple. According to Richard Branson, complexity is your enemy. Any fool can make something complicated. It's hard to make something simple. I can't speak for other people, but dyslexia shaped my and Virgin's communication style, Branson once told me. From the very beginning, Virgin used clear, ordinary language. If I could quickly understand a campaign concept, it was good to go. If something can't be explained on the back of an envelope, it's rubbish. The Storyteller's Tools If something can't be explained on the back of an envelope, it's rubbish. In a short sentence of just 13 words, Branson identified one of the key components of a compelling business story, brevity. Branson's advice reminds me of a tip I once heard from one of Google's early investors at Sequoia Capital. He said, if an entrepreneur cannot explain his idea in 10 words or less, I'm not interested, I'm not investing, period. Clearly, Branson agrees. Branson values a short story. And if it can fit on a beer coaster, even better. Brett Godfrey is a former Virgin Group financial manager who turned a trip to a London pub into an $80 million payday. Godfrey drew up what became the business plan for Virgin Australia on the back of coasters he had placed his beer on. Investors like Richard Branson want to see the big picture before they dive into the details of a business idea. Just as every story needs a headline and every book needs a title, a good storyteller will start with the one big idea before expanding on the details. In a business pitch or presentation, the headline is the one sentence that's going to grab your listener's attention and put the narrative into context. It's the one thing your listener needs to know. For the best examples of how to write a headline, look no further than Twitter and its 140-character limit. According to Richard Branson, in anything I write, I now make a conscious effort to condense the point I want to make into a Twitter-like format. Even if I only manage to get it down to a couple of hundred characters, I can still count on getting my message across much more effectively than if it were ten times the length. Steve Jobs is the entrepreneur Branson says he most admired. It's easy to see why. Steve Jobs was a master of simplicity, and he turned the business presentation into an art form. Whenever Jobs introduced a product, he would describe it with one perfectly crafted sentence or headline that always fit well within the 140-character Twitter limit. Jobs repeated the headline so often in his presentations and his marketing material that consumers and journalists would become marketing extensions of the product. In 2008, Jobs introduced Apple's first ultra-portable notebook, the MacBook Air. In a sentence, he said, it's the world's thinnest notebook. Think about it. In just 29 characters, the world's thinnest notebook, Steve Jobs' message spoke volumes while also easily fitting in a Twitter post. Here's another example. In 2001, Steve Jobs knew all too well that 5 gigabytes of storage would be meaningless to his customers. 
Instead, Jobs crafted the one sentence that told a complete story. The iPod, he said, is 1,000 songs in your pocket. In one sentence that easily would have fit in a Twitter post, Jobs spoke volumes and told his consumers nearly everything they needed to know about the new product. In one sentence, people knew what they were getting. In one sentence, Jobs launched one of the most iconic product taglines in business history. Creating what I call a Twitter-friendly headline requires work because you're hiding complexity. Steve Jobs once said simple can be harder than complex. You have to work hard to get your thinking clean to make it simple. But it's worth it in the end because once you get there, you can move mountains. Richard Branson believes that stories can move mountains, but a speaker must scale the mountain in short bursts of relevant information. Each piece builds on the one before. Just as you can't climb a mountain by starting at the summit, you can't sell an idea by dumping all of the information on your listener at the same time. Consider the Twitter-friendly headline as base camp. It sets the foundation for the rest of the conversation. A longer email might be Basecamp 1. A 10-minute presentation might serve as Basecamp 2, and so on, until finally you reach the mountaintop and you've taken your listener along for the journey. Once you've reached the summit, your vision will be much clearer, and both you and your audience can enjoy the view. The Storyteller's Secret Great stories start with great headlines that capture the one key message behind an idea. According to Richard Branson, the power of stories is their ability to not only inform and challenge, but also inspire and create change in the world. Branson's storytelling advice is as simple as it is concise. Say what you mean, and mean what you say, and preferably, in as few well-chosen words as possible. Chapter 19. The Evangelizer-in-Chief I have just three things to teach. Simplicity, patience, compassion. Lao Tzu A sales slip saved Mario Bergoglio's life. His parents had booked passage on a ship that would take them from Italy to Argentina, where the family hoped to make a new life. Though they were very poor, they had scratched together enough money to secure spots in steerage on the ship Principessa Mafalda. The ship left its port in Genoa in October 1927, but it would never reach its final destination. After a propeller ripped a hole in the ship's hull, it sank off the coast of Brazil. 500 people drowned, including nearly everyone in steerage. Only a twist of fate kept Mario from boarding that ship. Mario's father had sold the family business, but the sail slip was laid to arrive and they couldn't board without it. At the last minute, the family was forced to cancel the trip and to rebook seats on another ship the following month. Mario's son, Jorge, frequently tells the story of his family's roots, often connecting it to the larger plight of immigrants. Jorge has become one of the most influential storytellers on the planet today. More than three million people packed the beach in Rio to watch Jorge Mario Bergoglio, Pope Francis, speak on World Youth Day in 2013. But that was just a precursor to an even larger audience. A record six million people flocked to see him in Manila during his visit to the Philippines in January 2015. While Pope Francis is revered for his acts of compassion and humility, his stories connect for another reason, their simplicity. Pope Francis religiously follows one of the cardinal rules of storytelling, the rule of three. The Storyteller's Tools In his first homily as the newly elected pontiff, Francis summed up his faith in three bullet points, journeying, building, and professing. It wouldn't be the first or the last time he relied on a three-part narrative structure. He had learned the technique years earlier and uses it in nearly every conversation, speech, or sermon. First of all, 
I would like to talk about three things. One, two, three, like old-time Jesuits used to do. One, two, three, Francis once told an audience as they laughed and cheered. Pope Francis credits his Jesuit training for teaching him the rule of three. But the technique is one of the oldest and most powerful guidelines in storytelling. Francis uses the template beautifully as a framework to simplify his message. In Manila, Pope Francis blended vivid metaphor with the rule of three. For example, he said God created the world as a beautiful garden. But man has disfigured that natural beauty with social structures that perpetuate poverty, ignorance, and corruption. On Christmas Eve 2014, Francis said, We have passed through the darkness which envelops the earth, guided by the flame of faith which illuminates our steps, and enlivened by the hope of finding the great light. Here's another example. On Ash Wednesday 2015, at the Basilica of Santa Sabina, Pope Francis heralded the period of Lent or fasting by highlighting components of the Lenten journey. Today's gospel indicates the elements of this spiritual journey, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Pope Francis uses the rule of three in nearly every sermon. The rule of three is a fundamental building block of communication. Decades ago, researchers found that the human mind is only capable of remembering three to seven digits in short-term or working memory. A phone number in the United States is seven digits because researchers found that seven is the upper limit of numbers that people can retain. But how do you remember a phone number? Most of us chunk the digits into smaller groups of three or four. Why do we find three inherently satisfying? People think in patterns, and three is the lowest number of units that can establish a pattern or a progression. For example, Movie directors say, lights, camera, action. Sprinters are conditioned to listen to the command, ready, set, go. What would you do if you caught fire? Hopefully, you'd remember to stop, drop, and roll. If you had to recall 18 steps, you'd be severely injured before you completed the progression. The examples are endless because the directions are effective, and they're effective because they are simple to remember. The rule of three makes any story more effective because audiences are more likely to recall the content. Great writers follow the rule. Thomas Jefferson changed the course of civilization with three unalienable rights, life, liberty, happiness. Our favorite children's fables are grouped in threes. The three little pigs, the three bears, the three musketeers, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. Aspiring screenwriters who take classes in the art of emotional storytelling also learn the three-act structure. For example, in a two-hour movie, Act 1 is about 30 minutes. It establishes the genre, action, romance, comedy. We are also introduced to the protagonist and the antagonist, the hero and villain. That happens in Act 1. Act 2 is longer, about 60 minutes. In Act 2, the characters are developed and hurdles are introduced, conflict and tension, that create obstacles for the hero. The tougher the obstacles, the more satisfying the final resolution. And finally, in Act 3, about 30 minutes, that's when the fun really happens, as the movie climaxes in a showdown between hero and villain. While all storytellers love the rule of three, for business storytelling, the three-act structure is especially critical to making your case simply and persuasively. Your customer does not want to know all 200 features of your product. Explain the three features they'll care the most about. Your client doesn't want to hear 52 marketing ideas. Offer your three best ones. Your investor doesn't need to know 23 reasons to invest in your company. List the top three reasons they'll be rewarded. The rule of three is one of the habits shared by nearly every storyteller you're hearing about in this audiobook. Steve Jobs told three stories in his famous 2005 Stanford commencement address. 
Brian Stevenson told three stories to receive the longest standing ovation in TED history. Sheryl Sandberg launched the Lean In movement with three messages for women in the workplace. Although these people are all rule breakers to some extent, challenging the status quo, the rule of three is one rule they all follow. The Storyteller's Secret Beginning with Aristotle and continuing through to Pope Francis today, the world's greatest storytellers stick to the rule of three because it accomplishes three things. One, it offers a simple template to structure your story. Two, it simplifies your story so your audience can remember its key messages. And three, it leads to the ultimate goal of persuasion, action. Chapter 20 A film mogul's granddaughter cooks up her own recipe for success. The audience wants to be attracted not by critics, but by a great story. Dino De Laurentiis In 1994, a young woman graduated from UCLA and stumbled upon the ingredient for a happy and wildly successful life. She enrolled in a Paris culinary school. The girl's parents considered her career path to be an odd choice. The entire family, after all, was in the movie business, and they expected the girl to follow the same recipe. The girl had been born in Rome, the place where her grandfather had produced some of the most iconic movies of the period. In 1976, the family relocated to the United States, where her grandfather set up his own studio. In all, Dino De Laurentiis would produce 150 movies over a 70-year career, with hits such as Serpico and Conan the Barbarian among them. While she may not have chosen his career path, the young woman did look up to her famous grandfather. Upon the famous movie producer's death in 2010, she would say, My grandfather was a true inspiration. He was my champion. And he was. The woman's career choice may have puzzled her parents, but it didn't confuse her grandfather, Dino. He was the son of a pasta maker and loved Italian cooking. He was a storyteller on the big screen, while his granddaughter, Giada De Laurentiis, made food her storytelling palate. I come from a big Italian family, she once said, and if there's one thing they love more than food, it's storytelling. I loved listening to my grandfather's elaborate tales of all the places he had been and all the food he had tasted along the way, and I couldn't wait to explore and see and take in all those amazing places he talked about. Giada's movie mogul grandfather understood the elements of a good story, chief among them the need to simplify content. He once said, If you get a book which is 600 pages, you have to reduce it to a script of 100 pages. In two hours of film, you cannot possibly include all the characters. For Giada, simplifying stories was in her family's DNA, so she set out to demystify the story of Italian cooking. Today, Giada has five shows on the Food Network and has published seven books, nearly all of which have become number one New York Times bestsellers. When Giada began hosting Everyday Italian on the Food Network, critics blasted her for trying to make dishes accessible to the everyday home cook. Proper Italian meals, like pasta, must be made from scratch, they argued. Giada countered that few people have the time to make their own pasta, but they could make delicious meals with simple ingredients. I didn't want to talk like a chef, she said. I didn't want to make complicated dishes. I wanted to make it my own. I wanted to share my Italian roots, and I wanted people to enjoy it. I put my chef's jacket in the closet and created easy recipes. If I had not done it my way, I wouldn't be here. Gianna had graduated from UCLA with a degree in anthropology, but she found her true calling teaching people simple techniques to make delicious Italian food at home. On her first television shows, however, her road to stardom seemed to have hit a snag. 
You see, she wasn't comfortable in front of the camera. She said, when I did Everyday Italian for the first time, it was a rough show. I was awkward and uncomfortable in front of the camera, and I had tons and tons of anxiety, she said. It manifested itself in a nasty stomachache all the time and a major case of insomnia. It was very humbling. Humility is a trait that most successful storytellers share. Because storytelling requires constant and never-ending trial and error. It requires practice, hours and hours of it. And practice is exactly what Giada did to improve her performance. The Storyteller's Tools I was honest with myself and my shortcomings, Giada once said. That's when my little brother helped me out. He followed me around with a camera all the time. I talked to the camera, and eventually the camera kind of became a real person and a real friend. At the end of every day, my brother and I would review my performance, which was nerve-wracking. Slowly and surely, I became better. What began as a rough start became more successful. Storytelling, by definition, requires performance. A strong narrative is not enough. Giada's comfort in front of the camera would eventually lead to an Emmy Award and her own restaurant on the Las Vegas Strip. Giada has several qualities that can help anyone improve their performance in front of a camera, whether the video is for a television show, a YouTube channel, a company blog, or even a Kickstarter campaign. Giada has passion. It's nearly impossible to be a successful storyteller without passion. Passion leads to energy, and without energy, enthusiasm, and excitement, it becomes very difficult to hold an audience's attention. Giada exudes enthusiasm in front of the camera because she is doing what she loves. Giada knew that the film industry was not her calling. She wanted to share her passion for food, even though she didn't know what a career in food would look like. But, she said, I knew I loved hanging out in the kitchen with my family, cooking with my family, laughing, telling stories, the smell of food, and I loved eating. I knew I had to do it, and that was enough for me. Authentic passion comes across on video. Don't press record without it. Giada smiles. You'd think smiling would come easy. When we're happy, we smile. Why, then, do most business professionals look like they're miserable when they're recording a video? Smiles are rare on professional business videos, but celebrated television personalities smile all the time. Giada is known for her radiant smile. Remember that storytelling is all about emotion, and smiling has been associated with the strongest emotional reaction. According to a Forbes article on the untapped power of smiling, smiling stimulates our brain's reward mechanisms in a way that even chocolate, a well-regarded pleasure inducer, cannot match. Neuroscientists are also finding that people can tell the difference between a real smile and a fake smile, which is why emotional storytelling always comes back to passion. If you are genuinely excited about a topic, it'll show and your enthusiasm will rub off on the viewer. Giada is conversational. We've all heard people who sounded stilted, stiff, or wooden. These are all words to describe the same thing, somebody who doesn't sound natural. When a person reads from a teleprompter or directly from notes, it slows down their rate of speech, which is unnatural. Web video is an informal platform. It rewards a more natural conversational delivery. People want to do business with someone they like, someone who sounds like they're talking to a friend over dinner. Conversational speakers use short words, and they keep their videos short. For example, when Bill Gates introduced Satya Nadella as Microsoft's new CEO, he made the announcement on a YouTube video and the video lasted just 1 minute and 45 seconds. A short video of under 2 minutes is ideal for an audience with a dwindling attention span. The sheer amount of noise on social media today demands a performance that gets right to the point.
Lloyd's TSB, a London-based insurance firm, launched a study to learn why household accidents were climbing. The researchers discovered that people who did not pay attention to a task were more likely to get hurt. That makes sense. But the researchers went one step further to study just how long people could maintain their attention. In a study of 1,000 people, they found that the average adult attention span had actually declined from 12 minutes in 1998 to 5 minutes in 2008. And what happened in 2008? The explosion in social media platforms, platforms that challenge our attention spans, Vine and its six-second videos, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, among others. Many business-related social media sites are finding that the ideal length of time for a video is anywhere from 60 to 90 seconds. Business leaders are increasingly relying on video to disseminate their transformational stories across the organization. But those videos mean nothing if your audience doesn't watch the video or internalize its message. Taking a cue from popular television personalities like Giada will make your videos engaging and, ultimately, more impactful. It's a recipe worth copying. The Storyteller's Secret Storytellers who capture the public's heart are passionate about their message, and they share that content in simple, approachable language. Video has become an essential component to delivering a story. Successful storytellers embrace the medium in a personable, friendly style that makes the viewer feel as though they're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the speaker. Chapter 21. The Storytelling Astronaut Wows a TED Audience. The more visual the input becomes, the more likely it is to be recognized and recalled. Dr. John Medina. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin took their first steps on the surface of the moon on July 20th, 1969. Meanwhile, 238,000 miles below, watching the event on television in a small cottage on Stag Island, Ontario, a nine-year-old boy was inspired to become an astronaut. Chris Hadfield dreamed of going to space. I thought they were the coolest guys ever, he remembers. He walked outside to look at the moon and said, I don't know how, but that's what I really want to do. Hadfield's dream had to overcome one seemingly insurmountable obstacle. Canada did not have a space program. The dream seemed impossible, but so had walking on the moon before John F. Kennedy, another great storyteller, first inspired a nation to look to the stars. Hadfield had boundless imagination, a fierce determination, uncompromising dedication, and the storyteller's gift for articulating ideas confidently and persuasively. It was a skill he used to make his childhood dream a reality. Hadfield recalls winning a public speaking contest in the eighth grade. I don't remember the teacher's name, he said, but someone taught me how to construct a talk and to convey my ideas so others would get something useful out of those ideas and remember what I said. When the newly formed Canadian Space Agency began soliciting for candidates in 1992, Hadfield threw his name in, along with 5,329 other applicants. He received positive news five months later. He had almost made it into the program. Hadfield had been chosen as one of 500 people to advance to the next round. After three more rounds of psychological evaluations and interviews, Hadfield made it to the top 20. The final candidates were sent to Ottawa for one week, and that's where Hadfield's storytelling skill made a difference. Each of the candidates was required to participate in a mock press conference. The Canadian Space Agency was not well-funded, so astronauts, as the chief ambassadors for the program, had to be exceptional storytellers to sell the program to the public. At 1 p.m. on a Saturday in 1992, 
the phone rang in Hadfield's kitchen. He received the news he had dreamed about since looking up at the moon as a nine-year-old. He had been chosen to be an astronaut. Hadfield served as the commander of the International Space Station. He became Canada's most decorated astronaut and the first Canadian to walk in space. In 2013, Hadfield became a social media sensation by picking up his guitar and singing David Bowie's Space Oddity while floating weightless in a space capsule. He posted the video on Twitter and had attracted one million followers to his Twitter profile by the time he returned to Earth. Hadfield came on my radar in March 2014 when he received a rare standing ovation at TED for a riveting presentation titled, What I Learned from Going Blind in Space. The presentation told the story of the time Hadfield's eyes slammed shut and stopped working in the middle of a spacewalk. Even though the spaceship was traveling around the world at five miles per second, Hadfield did not panic because he had been trained to prepare for nearly every situation. He offers a lesson in how to overcome one's fears. Hadfield's presentation was an astonishing display of visual storytelling. Hadfield's PowerPoint deck contained 35 slides, all photos and no text. I'm a big believer in the power of a compelling visual, Hadfield told me. A really good visual isn't just beautiful. It makes you think. You draw conclusions from the depth of the information that's in it. For example, when Hadfield describes what the world looks like from the space shuttle, it's nearly impossible for us to picture it ourselves. The close-up images of continents and waterways are like paintings that would look right at home in a museum. As an ambassador for the Canadian space program, Hadfield had given weekly presentations for 25 years before he reached the TED stage. In those years, he learned that the presentation itself doesn't tell the story. He's the storyteller. The slideshow complements the story and brings the narrative to life. He says, when I go into an art gallery, I'm always drawn to the information, who the artist was and when they painted it. Where did they paint it? It's the backstory that brings soul to the image. Otherwise, it's just a pretty picture. The story that goes with it is what really matters. The Storyteller's Tools Hadfield relies on two powerful storytelling techniques to transport his audience to the seat next to him in the spaceship. He uses pictures and analogies. Using pictures to tell stories is a technique well-established in the neuroscience literature. It's called picture superiority. Researchers have found that if you simply hear information, you'll recall about 10% of the content. If you hear the information and see a picture at the same time, it's likely that you'll retain 65% of the content. Hadfield's presentation, which lasted only 16 minutes, contained 35 photos and two videos. For example, while he was talking about being inspired to be an astronaut at an early age, he showed a slide of a photo of a nine-year-old Hadfield in a cardboard box cutout. It was cut out to resemble a rocket. The picture itself doesn't tell the story. Without Hadfield's narration, it would just be a cute picture of a little boy in a box. In another section of Hadfield's now-famous TED presentation, he brings up the common fear of spiders and suggests how to overcome the fear. Since most of us have a natural aversion to spiders, it makes sense to show a photo of dangerous spiders like the brown recluse or the black widow. Hadfield could tell the story without the photos, but because we have a deep emotional reaction to spiders, the photos help to reinforce the theme that knowledge and preparation will help you overcome your fears. Hadfield makes the point that there are 50,000 types of spiders, of which only about a dozen are venomous, so it's unlikely that you'll run into the dangerous ones. Hadfield says, the next time you walk into a spider web, you don't need to panic. 
The danger is entirely different than the fear. The picture superiority effect explains why the photos in Hadfield's presentation are more impactful and easier to recall than if he had created slide after slide of nothing but words and text. According to John Medina, tests performed years ago show that people could actually remember more than 2,500 pictures with at least 90% accuracy several days post-exposure even though the subject saw each picture for about 10 seconds. Accuracy rates a year later still hovered around 63%. In other words, successful educators have learned that a combination of pictures and words facilitates learning much more than the words could do on their own. The $875 million PowerPoint Hadfield is selling ideas, but even company pitches benefit from visual storytelling. For example, one company transformed its PowerPoint from mostly all words to pictures, and they won an $875 million contract. The company is in the business of industrial construction equipment. Everything about the industry is big. Some of the cranes that they use weigh as much as 15 million pounds. That's the equivalent of nearly 80 space shuttles. The cranes stand as high as 600 feet, four times taller than the Statue of Liberty. In America alone, there are two million miles of pipelines that feed our energy needs. Many of those pipelines are hundreds of miles long delivering trillions of cubic feet of natural gas and liquid petroleum every year. The financials are also big. It's not uncommon to find industrial construction contracts worth tens of billions of dollars. There was at one time a company, a small company in this big field, that wanted to be as big as the equipment they sold. But although its leaders had aspirations to grow substantially, one thing held them back. Their presentations. The presentations were dull and uninspiring. And it wasn't that they were dull people. Rather, they had fallen prey to a common malady of businesses, both large and small. They were using wordy PowerPoint slides to deliver facts and figures. They had plenty of data that measured how many miles of electrical wiring they had installed, how many coils they were fabricating for steam furnaces, or how many turbines they had built. The problem was the company's competitors also had data, and in many cases, even bigger and more impressive data. The company's marketing officer had an idea that would help the company's message stand out. Instead of using PowerPoint slides to deliver chart after chart of data, he would tell a story around the data, and he would use PowerPoint to illustrate the story with photographs. Once the transformation took place, business began flowing once again, and in bigger ways than anyone in the company had predicted. The original PowerPoint presentation had more than 70 slides of charts and text. The marketing director replaced those slides with 30 photos, 30 photo-rich slides. For example, many of the slides in the original presentation contained 200 words. Many of the slides in the new deck contained fewer than 10 words alongside a photograph. The data did not go away, but it was packaged in story form. For example, one slide showed one number. 240,000 over a photo of the moon. We've installed over 240,000 miles of pipe, a spokesperson would say. That's enough pipe to route heating oil from here to the moon. Some senior leaders in the company were a bit skeptical about this new approach. They didn't believe that a PowerPoint with fewer words and more pictures and more stories could be effective. But since the company was struggling to attract new business, especially after the 2008 recession, they didn't have much to lose. The marketing director received the go-ahead to deliver the presentation in a series of public presentations intended to woo new clients. 
What happened next took the senior leaders by surprise, but it shouldn't be remarkable for those who understand the power of visual storytelling. A leader from a large oil firm asked the company to bid on a project. They did, and eventually won the $875 million contract. It was the largest contract in the company's history. After the contract was signed, the marketing director asked the head of the oil firm why his company had chosen the small construction company. Your presentation was so different, it made me see the possibilities, the oil executive said. That kind of thinking is where I want to invest. A concise deck, simpler slides, and more pictures told the company's story far more persuasively than a long, convoluted, wordy PowerPoint could ever do. PowerPoint is not the enemy. A lack of creativity is the culprit. When PowerPoint is used to illustrate a story, it can and does change minds. When a picture isn't enough. Now we know that a photo will enhance your story, but pictures aren't nearly enough. Painting pictures in the mind's eye is also a component of successful storytelling. Astronaut Chris Hadfield doesn't earn standing ovations simply because he shows pretty space pictures. Just as Dr. Ed Hallowell does in explaining ADHD to his audiences, Hadfield skillfully uses descriptive analogies to create mental pictures of his experiences. Most of us will never set foot on another planet or ride a rocket into space. How is it possible to experience what it feels like? Analogies are the closest we'll get, and Hadfield is a master at creating them. For example, listen to Hadfield's description of liftoff. It is incredibly powerful to be on board one of these things. You are in the grip of something that is vastly more powerful than yourself. It's shaking so hard you can't focus on the instruments in front of you. It's like you're in the jaws of some enormous dog and there's a foot in the small of your back pushing you into space, accelerating wildly straight up, shouldering your way through the air, and you're in a very complex place, paying attention, watching the vehicle go through each one of its wickets with a steadily increasing smile on your face. After two minutes, those solid rockets explode off and then you just have the liquid engines the hydrogen and oxygen, and it's as if you're in a dragster with your foot to the floor and accelerating like you've never accelerated. You get lighter and lighter. The force gets on us heavier and heavier. It feels like someone's pouring cement on you or something. Until finally, after about 8 minutes and 40 seconds, we are finally at exactly the right altitude, exactly the right speed, the right direction. The engine shut off and we're weightless, and we're alive. The jaws of a dog, the foot in the small of your back, the dragster, the concrete, all of those are analogies that help us infer what the experience might feel like. Analogies help us connect abstractions to store knowledge. The analogies stamp the content into our brains. Hadfield's photos on his PowerPoint slides stimulate the visual cortex, while his analogies stimulate other parts of the brain, such as the somatosensory cortex, which is associated with touch. According to author James Geary, analogy is the only way we learn about anything of which we can have no direct experience, whether it's the behavior of subatomic particles or the content of other people's experience. Analogies, it seems, simplify complex topics and introduce us to new, unique experiences that we otherwise would have no way of understanding. Hadfield spent a quarter of a century in the Canadian space program, serving as one of its ambassadors, giving public presentations nearly every week, he learned that there is no point in delivering a presentation or speaking to an audience if they fail to get anything out of it. Hadfield's pictures and analogies bring the story of space down to Earth. The Storyteller's Secret 
Great storytellers use pictures, sometimes real, sometimes by analogy, to create a vivid portrait of an experience or an event. Chapter 22 Dude Selling a Battery and Still Inspires The people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Steve Jobs While storytellers like Chris Hadfield dreamed of traveling to space, Elon wanted to build the spaceship to get them there. Story played an important role in Elon's childhood in South Africa. He seemed to have a book in his hands at all times, wrote his biographer. When school let out at 2 p.m., he would go to the bookstore and stay until 6 p.m. The Lord of the Rings and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy were among his favorite books. Young Elon loved reading stories and listening to them. He remembers listening, transfixed, to the stories of his grandfather, Joshua Haldeman, who had a lust for adventure. Haldeman would pack his family into a single-engine airplane and travel from their home in Pretoria, South Africa, on trips that would cross 22,000 miles through Europe. My grandmother told these tales of how they almost died several times along their journey, Elon recalls. Today, Tesla and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk believes those stories of his grandfather's exploits help to explain his insatiable desire for excitement, adventure, and his unusual tolerance for risk. Elon Musk is one of the most influential innovators of our time, pioneering advances in electric cars, space travel, and sustainable energy. On April 30, 2015, Musk introduced the Tesla Powerwall, a home battery that captures and stores sunlight from solar panels and converts it to energy. Although it's designed for the average consumer, the technology that makes it work is highly complex. According to the website, the Tesla Powerwall is a wall-mounted, rechargeable lithium-ion battery with liquid thermal control. And that's the easy stuff. The technical specs are understandable only to the most advanced scientist and physicist. Elon Musk is one of the smartest inventors on the planet, but when he explains technology to consumers, he uses language even a sixth grader can read. The Storyteller's Tools Peter Kincaid co-developed the Flesh Kincaid Readability Test in 1975. The U.S. Defense Department began using it to assess the reading difficulty of training manuals. Today, educators rely on the score to gauge the appropriate reading level for books used in the classroom. The Flesh Kincaid grade level test measures word length, sentence length, and other factors to assign a grade level, the number of years of education generally required for a person to understand a specific text. For example, Articles in the Harvard Business Review return a grade level of 17 or higher. Articles in the New York Times are written for 9th grade or higher. While, according to the tool, text to be read by the general public should aim for a grade level of around 8. Now let's take a closer look at the key phrases in Elon Musk's Powerwall presentation. Musk understands story. And he knows that all great stories, as we've discussed, have a hero and a villain. Musk introduces the villain and the hero as a problem and a solution. And he uses simple words and sentence structure to do it. For example, Musk's first slide shows a picture of smokestacks spewing carbon emissions into the air. Musk says, Welcome, everyone, to the announcement of Tesla Energy. What I'm going to talk about tonight is a fundamental transformation of how the world works and how energy is delivered across Earth. This is how it is today. It's pretty bad. It sucks. I just want to be clear, because sometimes people are confused about it. This is real. This is actually how most power is generated with fossil fuels. The paragraph I just read returns a Flesh Kincaid grade level of 
meaning the average sixth grader should be able to read it and generally to understand it. But surely the solution must be more complicated, right? Well, let's see. According to Musk, the solution starts by looking up. And he said, the solution is in two parts. Part one, the sun. We have this handy fusion reactor in the sky called the sun. You don't have to do anything. It just works. It shows up every day and produces ridiculous amounts of power. The paragraph I just read returns a flesh Kincaid readability score of just 2.9. While the average third grader doesn't understand a fusion reactor, they generally would be able to read that paragraph. The sentences are short, and most of the words are made up of just one syllable. I was skeptical when I first saw a grade level of 2.9. There's no way a third grader could understand that. But I had access to my own personal experiment. My youngest daughter had just completed the second grade, and she was on her way to third. I recorded her reading the paragraph on her very first try. She read it almost perfectly. She stumbled on two words, reactor and ridiculous. My eldest daughter, who had just completed the third grade, she's going to fourth, read it perfectly and understood all of it, including the word fusion. Once Elon Musk introduces the son as the hero of his narrative, he introduces another challenge, existing batteries. And once again, he uses very simple language to describe the problem. Here's how he stated the problem. The issue with existing batteries is that they suck. They're really horrible. They're expensive. They're unreliable. They're sort of stinky, ugly, bad in every way, and very expensive. Once again, the Flesh Kincaid tool returned a grade level of 6.1 for the preceding paragraph that I just said meaning that a person doesn't even need a high school education to understand it. A blogger for The Verge, covering the Elon Musk presentation, wrote an article about it, and he titled it, Watch Elon Musk Announce Tesla Energy, in the best tech keynote I've ever seen. In the article, the writer said, Dude's selling a battery, and he still managed to be inspiring. Yes, the dude is selling a battery, but batteries don't inspire. Stories do. Elon Musk's keynotes are being compared to another technology innovator and storyteller, Steve Jobs. Jobs, too, understood the need to introduce villains and heroes, problem-solution in product narratives. And he did so in words so simple a grade school student could understand it. In a 10-minute presentation on April 28, 2003, Steve Jobs reinvented the music industry, and he persuaded millions of music lovers to pay 99 cents for a song. The iTunes Music Store completely changed how people acquire and enjoy music. For 99 cents per song, users could choose from 200,000 tracks at the time. More than 1 million songs were sold in the first week. Today, the Apple iTunes Music Store is the largest music retailer on the planet. Steve Jobs revolutionized the music industry by doing something quite extraordinary. He persuaded millions of music lovers that it was a good idea to pay for something many of them were getting for free on those peer-to-peer file-sharing programs. And he did so using classic narrative techniques of introducing heroes and villains. In the Steve Jobs presentation, the villain appeared first. A problem in need of a solution. The hero followed. The Apple products. Jobs began with a brief discussion of Napster and Kazaa, sites that offered what he called near-instant gratification and, from the user's perspective, free downloads. On the very next slide, Steve Jobs listed what he called the dark side. They were unreliable downloads, unreliable quality, no previews, no album art, and finally, it's stealing. Jobs continued to paint a picture of the villain using Kazaa 
as the antagonist. He demonstrated how a typical user might have to guess at among the 50 or 60 files of the same song and choose the one to download. And then he said the download is as slow as molasses and craps out halfway through. Finally, he said, you've downloaded the song only to discover it was encoded poorly and the last few seconds have been cut off. After 15 minutes, the user gets a clean version of the song. Jobs brilliantly put that time into perspective. He said, what that means is you'll spend an hour at that rate and you'll get four songs, four songs that cost under four bucks from Apple. 